It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA podcast on underdogdynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you once again. I almost forgot my own name, but I didn't, Eric. Um, <laughs> let's let's jump in and talk about some of the CUSA stuff uh, that happened this past weekend. Nothing too surprising in terms of results, um, but, you know, Eric, I know you were uh, in the skies uh, above our great country for a little bit there, traveling to the uh, FIU Texas Tech game uh, in between uh, festivities in Las Vegas. Yeah, Joe, you hit the nail on the head there, right? I was celebrating the nuptials of a very good friend and anyone who has done the Vegas thing, I don't care who you are, for any of our listeners, you know how that is. You are going to spend a lot of money. You are going to make decisions that you look at your wallet and maybe your uh, ethics or morals and think, why did I do that? <laughs> but all in all, it was a fun weekend. Definitely glad to get out to Vegas, get out to West Coast. Man, I don't know how you West Coasters do it. That uh. It's just weird watching certain things at 9 and 10 a.m. that I wouldn't normally otherwise. And, and then uh, getting out to Texas Tech, we'll talk about that in a recap. But yeah, Joe, uh, fun weekend and definitely don't know how you West Coasters do it. It just felt odd. Yeah, I mean, from from a football watching standpoint, like I almost kind of prefer it to the East Coast. Like you get up and the games start right away and you have that opportunity to like enjoy it with, you know, breakfast. And then it goes until you know, eight o'clock. And then usually you have like the Hawaii game to like go until about 10 o'clock. And then like, that's a full day, right? Like in, uh, when I lived on the East coast, like sometimes, you know, you'd be up just, you know, for us it's working, but like not even really like you'd be writing recaps basically until like three in the morning. And like, I, I don't miss that part of it. No. And, and that is, that's a fair point, right? You know, when we're on the East coast, Especially if you're, you got your teams play on the West Coast, get a late game. You know that you're going to be up. It's you're going to be up at least to what two, like you said, maybe two or three, getting that recap done, and then of course you got a quick turnaround because it's you know football. And if you're tailgating or getting out to the bar, you got to be there 11 a.m. So it's a fair point on that. And I didn't get a chance to enjoy it on Sunday. Sunday I was already in the air heading back to Florida, but uh, that would be cool. Like I feel like I'd enjoy watching the games at a sports book uh, on Sunday at 9 a.m. You know that that would be cool. What did you spend money on in Vegas that you regret the least? Oh, the least, the least. Okay, the okay. Least. I can't. I can answer that yeah, question. All least. right. For <laughs> listeners at home, you did not see my face. Um, no, the least would be the the initial round of uh, drinks in celebration of the nuptials. I was able to buy the bride and groom. Uh, both came out for a quick minute on Thursday before we just had the groom for uh, the late the late recap on a Thursday night. So that was what I I. I uh, regret the the least <laughs> nice well congrats to the uh the happy couple that uh celebrated their nuptials this weekend uh with that let's jump into some recaps starting with probably the most exciting game of the weekend louisiana tech and smu uh the mustangs won that one 39 to 37 
on a last second Hail Mary uh, to take that one back to uh, the Dallas area as SMU improves to 3 0. Uh, Louisiana Tech falls to 1 2, unfortunately, for Skip Holtz's squad. You know, I, I, we saw another pretty solid day from Marcus Williams again. I feel good about where he's uh, progressing to in terms of Louisiana Tech's offense. Um, but, you know, I think we really expected this to be a little bit more of a blowout given how fast-paced SMU's offense is. So on one hand, I kind of have to tip my cap to Louisiana Tech for really being right there in a game that not many people expected them to win. But on the other side, you know, from what we've seen for them so far, they are the uh, the cardiac bulldogs, unfortunately. Just keep getting stuck in these close game situations and now twice haven't really been able to pull it out as we saw against uh, Mississippi State as well. Yeah, Joe, and that's one way of looking at it and I don't want to say that it's incorrect, right? But I do want to say this. I was willing to overlook it last week, right, with Cole Kelly and Southeast Louisiana. Of course, we had our jokes as far as them kind of their logo and team representing the old FCS Southeast on NCAA football. But now we have a second straight week of allowing a massive amount of passing guards. And this, if you took last week's results and put it this week, or however you want to phrase that, right. And just put one game. It's not as concerning because SMU, as you mentioned, is a very high powered offense. And that's kind of what we expected from the Mustangs and Tanner Mordecai. Right. But when you look at it back to back weeks, you got to wonder if your skip holds, do I have an issue in my secondary, especially with a guy like B.J. Williamson, who's one of the better defensive backs in all of Conference USA? You know, and you and I talked about this last week, the history that Tech has with great defensive back play, going back to Algeria Sneed and Amik Robinson, et cetera. So that is my first thing. The second thing, heartbreaking loss, right? To lose in that fashion, you know, 33-yard Hail Mary. I guess you can call that a Hail Mary, you know, kind of a chuck into the end zone there. Definitely a tough pill to swallow. So it's going to be key to see how Louisiana Tech can bounce back and rebound because they've got North Texas, and that's one that, quite frankly, North Texas is very capable of putting up a lot of passing yards in their own right. Now, as we know, and we'll talk about, they still have their own defensive issues, so uh, Austin Kendall and company shouldn't have any issues putting up points of their own. But my biggest takeaway is outside of the heartbreaking loss, just, what's that, uh, 490-something and 395, quick math here, seven over 880 yards passing allowed in the past two games a little bit concerned yeah no i i can definitely see and it's not going to get any easier as you said when you look at the offenses that are left on their schedule i mean what what corrections do you make if you find yourself in that scenario that's you know what um joe it's a good question and listen i don't want to sit here and say that that issue is unique to louisiana tech or north texas because quite frankly there are in today's excuse me in today's football i shouldn't even say just college football but in today's football in general, it's difficult to be a defensive back. It's difficult to play in the secondary against just the talent of these quarterbacks and some of the, the ways that offense is able to scheme up and you know get passing yards, right? So what changes do you make? I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I don't want to sit here and pretend as if you know, I'm some defensive expert, right? But I do want to say this. I just think, like I said, I wouldn't be as emphatic if it were just SMU. But when you take it and you can you kind of, you know, look at it as far as games back to back, you just know whether it's and you know what, Joe, it's interesting because I see a lot of teams go to the four to five on a regular basis. Right. Which most teams are already playing nickel 60 to 70 percent of the time anyhow with a star. But maybe that's something I mean, we've seen um, UTEP go with, you know, a three, three, five 
and I'm not sitting here saying that they need to, you know, go three down linemen. You know, I personally, I'm a fan of four down linemen, but maybe it's employing in some cases, six DBs. We'll see. So it's not as if they don't have talented DBs. It's just a matter of making, uh, you know, making better plays and getting pressure on the quarterback. Yeah, you know, it's an unfamiliar issue for a Skip Holtz team. In the past few years, they've had these pass rushers that have always kind of been able to supply that that quarterback pressure that makes most defensive backs' jobs that much easier. So uh, hopefully they can get that corrected if they want to still, you know, be in the conversation towards the end of the season for that West Division. Uh, staying in the West Division, let's talk about UTSA and Middle Tennessee. Uh, Roadrunners win that game in the return to the Alamo Dome, 27 to 13. Uh, Frank Harris, 24 of 39 for 264 yards and two touchdowns. Sincere McCormick, 23 carries for 105 yards. And then, you know, Eric, when we talk about UTSA's offense, we we talk about Sincere McCormick and Frank Harris quite a bit. Uh, but I, you know, it, it's tough to say that Zakari Franklin gets the credit that he deserves. But uh, in this game, he, you know, definitely showed that he's just as important a weapon when it comes to that offense. Eight catches for 114 yards and a touchdown looked really, really solid. And you got to give it up to UTSA's defense, too, because, you know, Middle Tennessee's offense looks a little bit better. You would probably argue that had they not, you know, made some of the staffing decisions that they made in the second half, this game would have been a little bit closer. Yeah. You know, I want to pick it up where you left off in terms of UTSA's receivers and they have a really dynamic duo in their own right. And Zakari Franklin, Josh Cephas, you know, this is, this is kind of the seeds of last year's success really, you know, just come into roost and come into bear and, and, you know, kind of giving UTSA a, a great success, right, in 2021. Because I just think that when you look at the talent of both guys, and Zakari Franklin last year, if memory serves me correct, was an all-CUSA. I want to say second-team performer, or maybe it was an honorable mention. But you knew that there was talent on the outside, right? It just was a matter of Frank Harris staying healthy and the quarterbacks being consistent and allowing these guys to show them play. And, Joe, how dangerous is UTSA if they were to get a consistent you know, play on the outside and consistent passing game? to go along with Sincere McCormick. I mean, they just look very impressive. As you mentioned, maybe some of the staffing decisions on the others on the other side, excuse me, and maybe the game's a little bit closer. And to an extent, if I wanted to nitpick, I could say I would have wanted to see UTSA blow this team out a little bit more. The two picks that Frank Harris or Quincy Riley certainly played a part in keeping the score respectable, but all in all, still a very solid win. And I guess I'll put it to you like this, right? Maybe if I'm... I don't know what you make of this, Joe. Is me looking for a more decisive win out of UTSA more indicative of what we think of the Roadrunners or more indicative of what we think of some of the, you know, middle of the pack teams in the East? Sure. For me personally, I think it's more indicative of what we, what I think of the Roadrunners. Um, with the amount of, you know, players that we've seen Jeff Trailer, you know, put out there and the way that they've developed within this system, they've just shown how solid they are and the expectations for them as a team, I think, are, are high for a reason. And, you know, to piggyback off the other side of that, you know, the bottom of this league, when you talk about Conference USA, is weak, unfortunately. So, yeah, when you put those two pieces together, you are expecting some pretty – uh, you know, highly separated score lines, if that makes sense. Like you have this UTSA team that arguably could have won this game by a couple more scores, if not for, uh, you know, a couple mismatches here and there, a couple mistakes. But 
uh, ultimately it's good enough when you look at, you know, again, their competition that they're going to have to face and put themselves in a position to win the league. No, those are, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head on a lot of those things. Those are all really fair points. And we'll talk about some of the issues that middle Tennessee state are going through in the middle section. So I'll kind of save, you know, that aspect of what we'll talk about until a little later on in the pod. With that, then let's, uh, let's go back to uh, another game within COSA from this past weekend, FAU and Fordham 45 to 14 was the final score there. Uh, Al's really didn't seem to have too much of a problem with the Fordham Rams uh, in the second half, uh, you know, in the first half, uh, Fordham kept this one pretty close. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the, the scoring pattern for this game, the, the Owls weren't really able to kind of come alive and look like what we thought they were going to look like until the third quarter. Uh, you know, it was only 14 to seven going into the half, but uh, in the third quarter, uh, Owls score 14 points and then 17 in the fourth um, while allowing only one Fordham touchdown. I like where, you know, Willie Taggart's got this offensive and their philosophy going specifically. But at the same time, you know, you, you can't start that slow against better opponents. You know, they, they got uh, – they were fortunate that they played a team like Fordham who clearly still has some stuff to figure out. Yeah, it's something we talked about last week in terms of them starting slow, right? It's something that they're lucky they're going to be able to get those things worked out against a Georgia Southern and a Fordham. Not that Georgia Southern has any slouch, but as we mentioned last week, they were going through their own quarterback issues. This is my big takeaway. Just how damn deep is that FAU running back room? I've got to give credit to Shane Marinelli of Owls 247. He does a great job covering the Owls down there in Boca. He's been telling me for the better part of two years that FAU has an incredibly deep running back room. And we knew that when you talk about Larry McCammon and Malcolm Davidson and James Charles. But then Johnny Ford, who was a late scratch with a dislocated shoulder. I shouldn't say a late scratch. I'm sure that was known internally, but we didn't find out until – uh, shortly before kickoff that he wouldn't play. Kelvin Dean Jr. steps up with nine carries for 42 yards and a touchdown, right? So, I mean, I just – between Davidson, McCammon, the veteran, and Charles and Ford, those are four guys that any CUSA room would be blessed to have. And then you look at, you know, you bring in Kelvin Dean, and there's a fifth guy, right? So it's almost one of those things, and I've kind of talked about this in other uh, on other podcasts, and I'll bring up here with you, Joe. It's going to be interesting to see how Willie Taggart manages that because I think at a certain point in time, you can get away with it against Fordham. You can get away with it against Georgia Southern when you're up 15, you know, two scores or, or 20 points and trying to ice the game away, right? You know, just get the ball to your backs and feed them. But what do you do when you're in a tight ball game at Marshall and you got to ride one hand, right? So that'll be interesting to watch. The other big takeaway for me, and this is someone who I will recommend to all Conference USA fans to keep an eye on, TJ Young safety for FAU had his second interception of the day. And that's a name that most CUSA fans and novice followers may not be familiar with, but keep an eye on him, Joe. I believe he's got 24 tackles and two, two, excuse me, 24 tackles and two interceptions so far on the year as we're through three games. He's very capable of kind of putting up that, as we like to call it, that Reed Blankenship here, right? Where you get 70, 80 tackles, handful of tackles for loss, couple interceptions. He's, very good safety. And I think in a league that has a lot of good safeties, whether it's Blankenship, great Rashad Wisdom, you know, uh, Naze Johnson and Marshall, TJ Young has got to keep an eye on, especially on a very good defense. If he can take his game to the next level, former, you know, high three-star, low four-star type of recruit, look out for FAU. 
I'm glad you brought TJ Young up. He has been uh, one of the underappreciated uh, defensive guys so far within COSA. So great to see him continue a, a, a solid start to his season there. Um, I want to go back to the running game for FAU for a second, sure. Eric. You you mentioned that you know the running back by committee situation, and in this game, um, it worked out for the most part, 246 yards of offense there, uh, three touchdowns on the ground. Um, but, you know, when we talk about some of the other CUSA teams on this podcast, we have mentioned several times how the running back by committee situation can have a downside. Um, do you think that there's one guy they need to be channeling this FAU rushing attack through, you know, for the rest of the season or no? It's it's interesting you asked me that question, Joe, right? And maybe – I don't know if this happens to you where you see a guy on his best day and that is the indelible image in your mind of him. When you saw the type of year that Malcolm Davidson had in 2019 and you saw now, granted, everyone shredded FIU's run defense in 2019. So I shouldn't use that as just, you know, the premier mark. But Malcolm Davidson made a lot of teams look that way. And as a natural runner, I've had people around that program tell me that as a natural runner, Malcolm Davidson is the best of the group. but if you don't do the little things, and again, I'm, I don't cover FAU, so I, I don't want to speak this, say this as an affirmative. I'm just saying what I've heard is that some of the other guys, whether it's Larry McCammon or um, James Charles, are better when it comes to the quote-unquote little things, like picking up the blocks, you know, being uh, better hands out of, out of the backfield. Like Johnny Ford is a very dynamic athlete out of the backfield, right? And that's a guy who, uh, if Johnny Ford came in in 2018, so yeah, Willie what do we hear one two okay so he really wasn't recruited by willie taggart i was trying to remember if johnny ford was recruited by willie taggart at, S at uh, usf but they they just miss each other but nevertheless someone who willie taggart is familiar with having recruited the area right and to answer your question i would it's so tough man because they have a lot of good backs but I, I would say if johnny ford's healthy i think he's the best option okay uh, yeah, I mean, it's always tough when you have so many guys who uh, excel at different aspects of the running back position because it's a lot more multifaceted than people think, uh, at least to you know the uneducated football watcher. Let's let's talk a little bit about Marshall and ECU to to get off of that. ECU wins this game, forty two to thirty eight. Uh, unfortunate result for the herd there. Grant Wells uh, threw two interceptions here, uh, also threw uh, twenty four completions out of thirty nine attempts. For 433 yards and a touchdown. And then Rashin Ali, three touchdowns on the ground and 189 yards uh, on the ground for him. So he continues what's uh, what's been a really strong start to the season for him. And, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, how do you replace Brendan Knox? So far, he's done a fantastic job of that. Uh, that being said, in this game, um, really just did not have an answer for Holden Ehlers and this ECU passing attack. Uh, 368 yards for the pirate signal caller. Uh, Tyler Sneed also added 27 yards through the air and a touchdown there. So all in all, ECU's passing attack ended the day with 395 yards through the air and three touchdowns. And then the rushing game also contributed three touchdowns. So we spent so much time in the past couple of weeks praising Marshall's defense. And unfortunately, they really just did not get the job done in this one. Yeah, you know what, uh, my friend, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach, right? Because, sure, you look at Holden Ayler's numbers, and if I may channel my inner Dan Morrison from the American podcast, he and Emily Van Buskirk do a great job on that uh, edition of our Underdog Dynasty podcast. But one week you're going to get good Holden Ayler's, another week you're going to get bad Holden Ayler's. I feel like anyone who follows college football or AAC football has known that in an entire career, right? And 
just happened to get good Holt nailers. In this case, Marshall got it right. But points off of turnovers are a big thing, right? It's If there's any stat that I'm a believer in, it's POT, points off of turnovers. And the reason I, I, I feel that way, Joe, is because it just swings that, you know, this isn't basketball, right, where you can kind of manage uh, a six or eight or ten point run and, and come back. You look at the interception that Holt Nailers threw, excuse me, the interception that Grant Wells threw, the first one, that was huge because Marshall had a chance to go up 17-7 on that drive. Marshall's defense forces a three and out. They get the ball back, go five plays, 18 yards, and a pick, and guess what? ECU turns that into a three-play, 96-yard drive for a TD, and instead of going up 17-7, that's 14-10, right? That's just a big swing in the ball game. And the reason I'm so emphatic about that is you mentioned Rashawn Ali. You mentioned the fact that if you're thinking if there's one guy on the team you're worried about replacing, it's Brendan Knox, and they're getting adequate replacement right there in Ali. The defense, all in all, yeah, you would have liked to have seen a better performance, but Marshall's defense has performed well in the first few games, right? Sometimes your quarterback has to pick you up, and – the, the second interception that Grant Wells threw, that's just him trying to, you know, win the game, right? You know, I'm not going to hold that one against against him. But it's those swings that when you play a team who – and I, I, it depends on what you want to make of Eastern Carolina's talent level. I, I'd say Marshall's probably the more talented team, but Holt Nailers, as I mentioned, is that guy who, who can – if he's hot, he's hot, and he can beat you by himself. Got to take advantage of those opportunities. So I know that I, I feel like I'm leading the, the Grant Wells criticism train, and I don't mean to because – Really like Grant Wells. He had a chance to talk to him on media day call. Seems like a great kid, but you know when you play quarterback, it's we'll talk about the the FIU game and same thing happened with FIU and Max Bordenschlager in a swing right there. They had a chance to go up fourteen zero and get a pick six, right? So those things are just huge. You can't have them. Yeah, and I mean. Hey, you're right. Uh, Grant Wells seems like a fantastic kid. That being said, it kind of comes with the territory of playing quarterback at the Division One level. If you are going to make those type of mistakes, then you know, those are going to cost your team huge. And you make a, a great point about uh, points off of turnovers. The fact that, you know, they happened when they did, the timing of those of those turnovers was so unfortunate. And, um, you know, I, I guess I want to clarify one thing about Marshall's defensive performance in this game. You know, they, they sacked Holt Naylor's five times and they had nine tackles for loss. So they were a pretty constant presence in the backfield, just as you said, Holton Ehlers was was on in this game, and that's not always the case for him. That being said, uh, you know you you want to see Marshall's uh, defensive secondary be able to you know defend against that a little better because you know as good of a day Holton Ehlers had, he's by no means the strongest quarterback they're they're going to face this year. Undoubtedly, agree there. You know, we talked about Ehlers being uh, hot and cold. Grant Wells definitely falls into that category as well. It's just unfortunate because it seems like in this case, and it's just the way that Marshall games have shaken out the last couple of years, you know, their wins are so dependent on him for, for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because when you look at the beginning of Grant Wells' career in terms of being the starter at Marshall, he played really well, right? And you can say the quarterback did a great job winning it for you, right? And Joe, maybe that's a factor of early on in his career, teams are more, you know, kind of concerned with Brendan Knox and thinking, all right, we don't know what this redshirt freshman has. But then as teams start to game plan for a guy, you know, maybe draws out a couple more mistakes out of you. And again, I'm not out to crush Grant Wells. I actually do think he's the solution there, the quarterback from Marshall. I'm not suggesting that he should be benched or anything like that. He's just going to have to, and you've talked about it a lot during the offseason, just going to have to continue his growth and development as a quarterback because it's those timely mistakes where – look at it like this. 
and I had a chance to see some of the, the Marshall boards, uh, message boards after the game. If you look at where they want to be and where they're trying to go, right, in terms of defending CSA's champs, yes, this is not a conference loss, but if they go 3-0 and heading into conference play in a couple weeks, that just puts them in a great position to, you know, A, be ranked again potentially, and B, kind of shut down some of this talk of FAU because, you know, I know you and I are talking about FAU as potentially really being one of the beasts of the East. So those things will have to get cleaned up and we'll see where they stand when those two teams meet. Yeah. Bottom line, if you're Marshall, you can still accomplish pretty much everything that you wanted to accomplish at the start of the season. This just adds a little of a hiccup that you're going to have to overcome in order to get there. So we'll see how Charles Huff and his squad are able to respond as we head into week four. Uh, with that, though, let's talk about Liberty and Old Dominion. The Flames win this one 45 to 17 easily on their home turf. Uh, so Old Dominion falls to one and two. Uh, you know, I, I don't want this to just be us gushing over how good Malik Willis is, but 21 of 28 through the air, 242 yards, four passing touchdowns, and then on the ground, nine carries for 77 yards and uh, and two touchdowns. So, you know, I, I think we, we didn't necessarily think Old Dominion was going to win this game, uh, and Liberty, you know, certainly showed that, you know, for their place in college football, they are as good as you could hope for, really. Uh, but for DJ Mack Jr., showed some good things, 15 of 27 for 134 yards and uh, a touchdown through the air to go along with an interception. Yeah, Joe, I, I know we don't want to turn this into gushing over Malik Willis, but you go watch him play live. I don't literally mean you, I mean, for any of our listeners, go watch him play live and you'll come back gushing. I've seen him play live twice. He's special. It's as simple as that, man. He is a real special dude out there, a quarterback. In terms of ODU, it does seem as if DJ Mack is firmly entrenched as the starter. I know we saw a little bit of Stone Smart last week. It's not Stone Smart. Let's try it again. Stone Smart is now a receiver. I was going to come to that point in a second. We saw a little bit of Hayden Wolf last week. And, uh, you know, he's kind of entrenched as the number two. But, yeah, DJ Mack, okay, these games hopefully give him a chance to build on and really get his feet wet. And I just want to implore ODU fans to be patient with him as someone who saw a lot of him at UCF. I do think he's a guy who, even though he's a red shirt junior, memory serves me correct, still hasn't played a ton of football, right? You know, he had the two starts, the, uh, the start when Mackenzie Milton was injured against Memphis, if memory serves me correct. Uh, and then the start against the, the start in the Fiesta Bowl against LSU and then, so three, and then he started the, the AAC championship game, right? So the game after McKenzie Millen was hurt in 2019 against Memphis, right? So a handful of starts prior to coming in this year. So just let him get to his experience and going against these type of teams will only help him when you come back into CUSA play and you're not facing, you know, power five teams or Liberty. So all in all, um, interesting. And the other, uh, the positions that I said, I, I want to mention there as far as the other guys, something that's been really interesting, Joe, ODU, is Ricky Ronnie's gotten a chance to move Stephen Williams to linebacker, a former 16-year-old prodigy at quarterback, and Stone Smart to receiver. So at least he's getting something out of these quarterbacks that, you know, if they don't win the job, they want to go contribute elsewhere. Yeah, that quarterback to linebacker uh, transition still just like boggles my mind. I think, you know, Ricky Ronnie does a lot of uh, he seems like a fantastic leader. And I think, you know, like you said, fans are just going to be have to be patient when you're coming back from sitting out an entire season and just getting, you know, the motions of playing football at this high of a level back again. But that move to me is very odd, especially considering how high they were on, uh, on that kid coming in as a 17 year old prodigy. Um, 
but yeah, to, to bring it back to DJ Mack, he's absolutely the guy they need to stick with for now. Um, he's so athletic. And um, unfortunately, the two games, it's just not a great sample size for Old Dominion that we've seen, right? Like the first game was against Wake Forest to the, you know, that offense is, is, you know, really something to watch. Um, and then going to Hampton, who, you know, no disrespect to Hampton, but not as tough as, you know, most of the teams that you're going to face who are an FBS level. Uh, and then this Liberty team, like, again, I think they're pretty underrated. I'm surprised they're not ranked for for how solid they are as a team. Yeah, yeah, because it's interesting. Personally, I, I, you look at their schedule, I think they have a really solid chance to run the table. Maybe some of the, you know, listen, I could go on an entire rant about preseason rankings and my feelings on that, but I, I guess I would say maybe it's got to be tough as an independent, right, to come in ranked. I mean, if, unless you are... Uh, the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Yeah, and you know, I, you, I mean, I know BYU won't be independent in a couple of years anymore, but yeah, you could put BYU in that category as well, uh, especially sure. when they had Zach Wilson. But yeah, no, it's it'll be interesting to see how Hugh Freeze can kind of get them to uh, another ranking. I w- I would bet money. I, if I if I had money to bet, I don't at the moment, but I I definitely see Liberty finishing the year, uh, bare minimum top twenty five, if not top twenty, but. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But for Old Dominion right now, you're you're one and two heading into uh, conference play. Um, you got to feel good about some things. But like I said, you're going to have to be patient if you want to you know, see this team get back to a, a level where they're winning consistently. And then we have Georgia State and Charlotte Panthers uh, surprise everybody and win this one 20 to nine. Uh, Will Healy's team not able to get it done on the road. Chris Reynolds, 13 of 28 for 158 yards and a touchdown in this one. Um, And then for uh, Georgia State, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, Cornelius Brown, the fourth, a.k.a. Quad Brown coming into this and how he was, you know, going to be the difference maker. And he didn't even play. Uh, Darren Granger was the one who uh, got the start for Georgia State. And he, uh, you know, unless there's a mistake on the the notes that I have, uh, he was six of 12 through the air, 139 yards through two touchdowns and, and uh, an interception. Um, but, you know, that was that was just enough to get it done. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, Charlotte just not really able to uh, to execute when they got in the scoring position in this one. Joe, if you had said to me coming to this game that Charlotte would lose and Quad Brown wouldn't have been the starting quarterback for Georgia State, I, I would have said I would have been shocked. I would have been surprised, quite frankly. And this was not an injury related move. This is we've talked about a couple of guys, you know, missed time to an injury. And we'll talk about another and Trey Lowe, when we get to Southern Miss recap, this was just, you know, Sean Elliott deciding he needed a change with his program. And I guess you can make that argument. I believe they were 0-2 coming into this game, uh, if memory serves me correct. So just stunning that they won this game without Quad Brown. But give credit to Darren Granger. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm still, you know, a little bewildered by it. Because if you had told me that the backup would come in and only complete six passes, six of 12, right, Joe? Have that correct? Yeah, they only complete six passes. I would have been surprised. Now. I'm not in any way implying that Charlotte's fool's gold, right? I, I think Charlotte's a good football team, and I, and I think that they have enough talent to get to where they want to go, which is a bowl game, right? But um, we're going to play, uh, and I, I shouldn't do this to you while we're taping, but we'll just play a little guessing game, right? What's the thing that we said that Charlotte needed to fix going to conference play that they had issues with the past few weeks? And you and I both said it in the last week's podcast, and they didn't fix it against Quad, against Quad Brown, against Georgia State. 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. Darren Granger just really exploited the the weakness in uh, Charlotte's defense, and and you know the and then of course you had the the rushing game too, which was you know they ran the ball fifty times for two hundred eighty four yards, and that's how you control the clock against a team with a number of effective you know running backs on their roster as well. So uh, Sean Elliott's got something figured out. Yeah, Joe, I knew you wouldn't leave me hanging to dry there. I, I probably didn't ask that in the form of a question, you know, most directly, but you did eventually hit on that question, right? <laughs> Which was, I said, what's the one thing they need to fix? The, the, the run defense, right? Yes. They gave up a, a billion yards to uh, Durant at Duke, gave up a ton of yards a couple weeks ago, and when you don't fix those issues, they will come back to bite you in the you-know-where. So that's the thing that, again, I still think Charlotte's going to get to where they want to be. Quite frankly, I think they have too much talent on the offensive side of the football, but I mean, even Tyler Murray, Marquise Watts had 13 tackles on a sack, and Tyler Murray's a hell of a linebacker, but they got to find something up front. I mean, Kofi Wardlow looked like a, a nice player defensive end in week one in terms of pass rushing, but they've got to get something in the form of some run defense or else they may not reach those goals. Anytime you allow a team to beat you with six completions that is an army, you've got some stuff to figure out. So hopefully Will Healy <laughs> – uh, you know, goes back to the drawing board a little bit this week and uh, gets his guys ready to play for next week because uh, it's not going to get any easier for Charlotte from here on out. Uh, with that, let's talk about the game that you were at this weekend, Eric. Texas Tech beating FIU 54-21. to uh, Panthers dropped to 1-2. and two. Uh, Devontae Price, 15 carries for only 51 yards and a touchdown uh, under center. You, you hit on it a little bit at the beginning of the show. Max Bortenschlager uh, had a couple issues, 12 of 27 in this game for 185 yards, two touchdowns and an interception, uh, you know, inopportune pick six there. Uh, so, you know, from where you were standing watching this game, uh, what can you, you know, offer the audience in terms of insight about FIU's performance here? Yeah, before I get to that, let me do a cheap plug here. I want to say thanks to David Collier. He is the sports director, KAMC, ABC 28 in Lubbock, for having me on his pregame show. Appreciate you, David, for having me on. And he's now a follower of Underdog Dynasty. So thanks again for having me on the pregame show, David. Uh, In terms of FIU, listen, Joe, they had their chances. As I mentioned, they came down and led this game 7-0 on a, I believe it was a nine-play, 88-yard drive that Devontae Price finished with the four yard touchdown run. And again, it just, especially when you are the underdog, the G five team going into a big 12 territory and give credit to Texas tech fans. Uh, you know, even though it wasn't a high profile opponent, they really came out and made a lot of noise throughout that ball game. But, you know, Matt Wells even came out and was pretty conservative, even, you know, punting on fourth and one. And that goes to show you probably how he felt about the level of opponent and FIU thinking, all right, we'll get our chances eventually. As I mentioned, you know, they have a chance to go 14-0. Uh, what happens on that, on that, uh, the play prior, the Texas Tech returner, whose name is escaping me right now, FIU punts, and he made a decision, I believe he said post-game, he thought that the ball hit an FIU defender. So the ball was just there on the ground, and he randomly decided to run towards it and <laughs> kicked it directly to uh, an FIU special teams player. So they get the ball in Tech territory. Next play, Max Bordenschlager pick six. He told me on that play that he thought that Rivaldo Fairweather had a step on the guy, and Probably should have let him, you know, a little further high uh, up and out and just didn't and was taken back for a pick six. And then from there, it led right into the second quarter. You know, Texas Tech goes up 14-7. 
FIU's last real chance of the game is they get a little swing pass out to EJ Wilson Jr. that he takes 65 yards to make it 14-14. Uh, fun fact, the FIU AD's box was directly to the left of me. So Pete Garcia and his crew, they were making a lot of noise in the first half, not so much come halftime because Texas Tech would score four straight times to close the quarter. They went up 31 to 14 at halftime and really didn't look back in there. Tyler Shaw with 389 yards passing, I believe, or 390 something and four touchdowns. So that game was really out of reach come the third quarter. And when I had a chance to talk to Butch Davis post game, his big thing was just the miscues, right? Whether it's the the pick six, Joe, they had an opportunity to stop Texas Tech. Uh, it pulled them to a field goal heading into halftime. They get a 12 men on the field penalty. That extends it, you know, third and five, makes it first down, and they catch them with a touchdown, right? So little things like that that FIU needs to get clean up, cleaned up. And as you mentioned with Devontae Price, listen, that's just a surprisingly good Texas Tech defense, 15 carries for 51 yards. And Devontae had a look on his face, you know, as the, the, the clock was running out in that game, just like, damn. You know, I don't know what happened. I had a chance to watch the last five minutes of that game from field level. But overall, as we're moving things forward for FIU, very, very big game this week against Central Michigan. We can talk about that when we preview next week. But they cannot afford to go one and three when they open conference play at FAU. Just can't. So we will see what happens. But as far as the game against Texas Tech, it's really their own doing that hurt them. You know, especially, as I mentioned, get a chance to go up 14-0 and – I'll give Butch Davis credit for this. One of the things he said to me post-game was, if you go up 14-0, that may change the way their play calling is, right? They may not feel as comfortable doing the RPO things, and it may feel it go strictly into passing attack, which FIU had their own struggle stop in the past, but nevertheless, it is a fair point that if you go up two scores, it changes the way that Matt Wells has to call his game. All in all, Texas Tech gets the job done. Yeah, you know, I think when you think of Texas Tech football, you think of that, you know, air raid type of offense, uh, and the fact that they were able to have as good of a defensive day in this uh, in this one is um, it's interesting since that's obviously not their reputation. Uh, but you know, you, you mentioned kind of the way that they were able to you know really shut down Devonte Price uh, for the most part. Um, you know, I, I guess any insight into like how they're going to change up the if they're, if they're going to change up the lineup or, or what tweaks that they maybe need to make uh as you kind of learn from a loss such as this yeah uh okay so here's the thing one they are missing shamar thornton who is 2019's leading receiver joe he's had an extended case of tonsillitis um that's exactly why he missed week one week two and now week three right so they really need shamar back tyrese chambers has stepped up really well in his absence but they need all hands on deck right Uh, defensively they didn't look bad against Texas State, so I can't even say that they need a shakeup there. Um, Everett Withers, in terms of employing the star, his son Pierce Withers, has done a really nice job over the past two games at the star position. I don't want to put it all on Max Bordenschlager. And again, anyone who knows Max knows, you know, really good kid, smart guy, uh, all Big Ten academic performer in his years at Maryland. But this is the second straight week that, you know, he's had a couple throws that he wishes he had back. And are, are they getting the most out of this offense from the quarterback position? Outside of week one, the answer is no. So I, to be honest, I really think the next week or maybe two are very crucial for Max in terms of the rest of this year because they do have Grayson James, the highly touted three-star true freshman who has come on. Um, Hayden Carlson was projected to go into this year as the number two, missed a lot of time due to COVID, and the true freshman Grayson James and the last the, the two games that 
uh, two quarterbacks have played, he's gotten the second snaps and he came in and took the final drive against Texas Tech. So that may be something to keep an eye on because I've had multiple people tell me that, you know, he does look to be like he's going to be a player at some point. Yeah, you know, we'll see if that added level of competition helps elevate uh, Bortenschlager's game to to get into the thick of the the rest of their conference schedule here. You know, we we talked a little bit about uh, Southern Miss and some of their own quarterback issues. Let's let's jump into some of that now as we recap their loss to Troy from this weekend. Uh, Trojans win this one, twenty one to nine in Hattiesburg. Uh, Eric at halftime, Southern Miss was winning this game three to nothing. Uh, and then Troy just came back with 14 points in the third quarter and then seven in the fourth. Uh, Southern Miss only able to add six more in the fourth quarter. So, you know, it, it's interesting that Southern Miss played such a, a strong first half defensively and then just weren't able to follow that up against, uh, you know, a team that, you know, and Troy, frankly, doesn't have very high expectations this year. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, is it a, is it a matter of – them not being able to follow up in the second half, or is it a matter of five of 17 on third down? And then, you know, you own one on fourth down. You mentioned the quarterback situation and Trey Lowe seems to be banged up with a foot injury. We're going to get keys again against Alabama. That news came out today that it will be Ty key starting against Alabama. So the Trey Lowe. So, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't envy Ty keys. I'll just put it to you that way. Could be an in for a, uh, a game like we saw a couple of weeks ago with, Georgia and UAB, right? So we'll see what happens there. But I think that was a big thing that really hurt Southern Miss and the Golden Eagles. I Something I'm curious, and I, I will give a shout-out for the second time in three weeks to Sippy Sports Show. Um, I'm curious, you know, what he, along with, quite frankly, some of the other Southern Miss fans that I've seen on Twitter, what their feeling are on Southern Miss right now, just because. I Listen, Joe, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. I know Southern Miss fans may not feel this way, I would have been just in fi- just as fine with them going four and eight this year, three and nine, as I would have been them going six and six, right? Six and six, right? And I can obviously say that being removed and not being a Southern Miss fan, but hear me out. Here's my logic. I felt in 2020, you saw enough of the building blocks, the Brownleys, the Gore Jr., Trey Lowe when he gets a full, you know, a uh, full week to, to be the guy, right? You know, with a game plan for him. You get some of the defensive pieces back, and you had Hayes Maples, another young piece there. You lose three games by less than a score. I felt I saw enough there to say that as a first-time head coach in Will Hall, you're going to have your growing pains. You just want to see something that looks like a semblance of progression away from the previous era, right? I'm curious what Southern Miss fans are kind of feeling right now, just because you lose to South Alabama, second straight year. You lose to Troy, a team that you can make the argument you're better than. And I guess I'm wondering what the feeling is in Hattiesburg, right? But nevertheless, I'm still holding firm to that. I, I do not think Will Hall is the biggest fraud in 50 years. <laughs> I think it's going to take time. But I, I guess, you know, this is my long-winded way of saying I wonder if Southern Miss fans are really hoping it, partially, rightfully so, given the way last year played out, that they'd have the one-year jump, similar to UTSA, in terms of going from worst to a bowl game. And quite frankly, I still don't see it that way with Southern Miss. I think the pieces are there, but I'm just as fine with them going three and nine and four and eight, four and eight, and showing improvement. And next year, once Will Hall kind of has his feet under him as a head coach, them making that jump then. So let me know if that rambling made sense, because it, it just came out on here. Yeah, no, you you totally make sense. I think the biggest thing that I agree with you with is the fact that you need to be patient with Will Hall and the fact that it's going to take a second to get 
this program where Southern Miss fans want it to be. As far as expectations for them for the rest of the year, I would agree that four games at this point is a reasonable expectation. Um, I think they beat Rice and, you know, I think they have could potentially beat MTSU and then maybe sneak one more in there. But look, they, they have just by virtue of being in CUSA West, you're going to have to go UTS to UTSA. You're going to have to play UAB and somewhere in there, you're going to also have to play a Louisiana tech team. That's always tough and a, a North Texas team that's can't defend, but it's going to put up a lot of points on you. So with that, I mean, I, I think if you can get to four games, that's going to be, you know, a solid step forward from where this team has been, you know, unfortunately prior to Will Hall, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's good to see that, you know, in addition to being humble, Will Hall has a realistic expectation of how far this program needs to go. But I mean, you go back to, you know, the, the previous two head coaches before Will Hall and the, the program was just, I mean, it was, it was bad. Things were bad in Hattiesburg. So the fact that you at least have somebody in there who recognizes there needs to be a culture change before anything else is a step in the right direction, I think. Right. And I do think that is fair. And maybe for Southern Miss fans, some of that optimism, quite frankly, just getting away from the Jay Hobson era, which they clearly were very much disillusioned with by the time that tenure came to an end. So we'll see. I just think that, you know, maybe the expectations were a little bit too high in year one. I just want to see some more fundamental, excuse me, some fundamental uh, progression from the building blocks, uh, especially, you know, like I said, defense they weren't given any help in terms of, you know, the offensive struggles on third down and we'll see what happens. Look, this could all be for not, they could turn around and, you know, win five games and this whole rant was for nothing, but I think it'd be interesting to watch. Do you think Frank Gore or Frank Gore senior is just going to be like, it is time you absorb the rest of my essence. And then just like, he just gains the strength of his dad and that's how Southern Miss bounces back. Listen, if anything is going to happen, it is going to be that I'll give you another hot take. Frank Gore senior's agent, uh, first round management. I know that because they're lo- uh, they're located down here in South Florida. Came out and said that there's a big announcement to, to, from to expect from Frank Gore Senior. And I'm just hoping that it is not retirement. In fact, it is that Frank Gore Senior has found an additional year of eligibility from the NCAA is going to suit up in Southern Miss with his son. It, it is possible because Arizona State former Arizona State punter Michael Turk declared. Remember this story, Joe declared for the draft. Somehow there was some loophole that he was allowed to come back. And now I think he hit the transfer portal. So you never know. I think in Hattiesburg, it could be Gore Sr. and Gore, Sen- Gore Jr. in the backfield. I would love that so much. <laughs> like, you have no idea. But, yeah, with, with Southern Miss, like, you're just going to have to be patient in order to, you know, hope this team gets to where you want. But in the meantime, there's a lot that needs to happen for that to become a reality. All right. And then in Denton, not the most exciting game, but as UAB rolls to a 40 to six win over North Texas. And, you know, we've talked about North Texas's offense and the capability that they have to put up points in a hurry. But then again, UAB's defense is as, as solid as, you know, I would say pretty much anybody in the G5 right now, other than maybe Cincinnati. And they showed it against this North Texas team. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's interesting at the quarterback position, you know, we didn't see a ton of, of Tyler Johnston. Um, we saw Dylan Hopkins come in 
completed six passes. Uh, I have seven attempts for for 202 yards and three touchdowns. So another instance of uh, a quarterback only throwing, you know, six completions, but still leading his team to a uh, convincing victory. Yeah, Joe, first off, you mentioned there and you talked about the fact that uh, you would be one of the better teams in the G5 ranks, you know, since you're there. I would have put UCF there before. Louisville freaking beat UCF and damn it. Quarterback Dylan Gabriel broke his damn shoulder in the last play of the game. I digress. Um, <laughs> just sorry, I had to get that frustration out at my good friend Joe Laundrie. Yeah, Joe, it's going to be an interesting situation for UAB, right? You talk about the quarterback situation. Tyler Johnson got the third, but exited the game in uh, the second half after UAB's third offensive possession So of the second half. So we'll see what happens, right? Dylan Hopkins obviously found a lot of success, and good thing for UAB that he's played a fair amount of football in his career as a backup, whether it's been him or Bryson Lacero. But for North Texas, you know, 14 to 34 passing, DeAndre Torrey gets held to 24 carries, 24 carries for 82 yards. Offensively, they didn't help out their defense at all. But the fact of the matter is, I don't care if it's Phil Bennett or Clint Bowen or whoever it is, North Texas has really struggled stopping teams, uh, you know, in terms of keeping points off the scoreboard. So uh, take that, you know, take the result with a grain of salt. I definitely think UAB wins that game regardless, but we'll have to see what happens going forward. Uh, it's something that we'll have to keep an eye on, Joe, because quite frankly, you know, they've played, I don't want to say hot potato, but we've seen multiple quarterbacks for a few years now, especially during the Tyler Johnson career, uh, Tyler Johnson era in Birmingham in terms of quarterback plays. So we shall see what happens. Yeah. And I mean, if Dylan Hopkins can, you know, just assume that next man up mentality, that's so important in these kind of situations, then UAB should be fine. And it, and it helps the, that also, they have uh, such a talented running back room, too. You look at Jermaine Brown Jr. and Dwayne McBride uh, and even Larry Wooden and Lucius Stanley. Like, uh, you know, everybody in this game against North Texas was able to get some quality touches. And, uh, you know, McBride and Wooden uh, turned in some uh, some touchdown carries in this one as well. And then you look at, uh, you know, on the receiving end, guys like Garrett Prince. Like, what a day for him in this one. Three catches for 136 yards and two touchdowns uh, with his long being a, a 61 yard uh, ball, you know, hopefully when you're playing with a backup quarterback already, your receivers having as strong of a day as they did here can only help things. Yeah, Joe, I've talked about the fact that offensive coordinator, Brian Vincent loves to push the ball downfield three for one thirty six for Prince, uh, one catch for 38 yards for Trey, Trey Shropshire. And then the one catch for 32 yards for Rajay, Johnson Sanders say that one three times fast, right? So clearly Brian Vincent is going to push the ball downfield and they're able to make plays. So as UAB continues their season, we'll see uh, how they're able to, you know, a how soon they're able to get Tyler Johnson, the third back and B if they don't, how much their game plan is really, you know, out the window with, with him not being under center. Uh, let's wrap up the recap of last week with uh, Texas beating Rice 58 to zero. You know, just mathematically one of the worst losses that Rice has had in a long time. Uh, you know, Steve Helwick talked a little bit about that in his recap of this game as he was there. I don't know what you can really say about Rice in this game when you get shut out the way that they did. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, Rice's offensive woes um, for, a couple years, unfortunately. And I mean, this was, you know, a, a shining example, unfortunately, of Rice just really not being able to get anything going. Joe, I don't have a ton that I'm going to go on about this game because how much is there when you lose 58-0? I'm just going to put it back into your court. 
listen, I don't think anyone's confusing this Texas team for the Vince Young, Colt McCoy era Longhorns. Still a very good team, obviously a better team than Rice. I think we all thought that Texas would win. Zero points. I, I, Joe, if I had said to you a year ago, or let's, no, no, you know what, let's say after the 29th, well, you know what, never mind. I, I'm totally doing this on the fly on the air. I apologize for the listeners. You pick a, a time frame at the end of the 2019 season or after last year, after they beat Marshall, that the program would be at a point where they're getting blitzed 58-0 and the often the struggles would still be what they were. What would be your reaction? I mean, if this had happened in that time, then, you know, I would say like, oh, you know, they're still trying to, you know, figure things out. Mike Broomkin still knew. But at the same time, like now that we are where we are, you know, you would think they'd have things a little bit more figured out. And from the example of this game, it, it doesn't seem like they've really made too much progress. That's the thing, right? You know, if those things happen in years prior, you say, okay, at least there's progress. But you you think, or you, there's room for improvement, I should say. But when you kind of see that there's some seeds there for something with Rice after the 2019 year, and then you see that they're able to, you know, handle Marshall, hand them a loss, break their undefeated season, you're looking for that period to build. And listen, them losing Mike Collins completely out of Mike Bloomberg's control. But I think we have enough of a sample size now where you just got to ask yourself, where are we as a program? Again, not advocating for Mike Bloomberg to lose his job, but 58 nothing in your home state against a Texas team that, again, like I said, I don't think they're world beaters. The last two games, they've been outscored, quick math here, 102 to 7. Uh, they've been outscored overall 140 to 24 in three games this year. It's not good. No, not at all. And yeah, like you said, we're not advocating for anyone to be fired. But at the same time, I think if you're Rice, you need to do some soul searching if you really get outscored over 100 to seven. You know, that's that I like I'm speechless by how bad Rice has been the last few weeks. And we had so much optimism about where this program is heading. It's it's unfortunate. Before we recap, uh, or rather, before we preview next week, uh, we had a couple things that we wanted to hit on. Uh, one, sort of amusing. Um, <laughs> one, you know, it, just more interesting than anything when you talk about, you know, where uh, a team that was competitive in CUSA East in recent years is is heading as a program. Uh, let's start with with that one and then end on a, on a laugh, Eric. Um, MTSU, of course, lost to uh, UTSA over the weekend. and. Uh, Bailey Hockman in his uh, time in that game was five of 12 for 41 yards and one interception uh, only played the first half did not return to the game in the second half after the game we find out um, and this is from uh, at Will Carter 13 uh, Will Carter is a uh, reporter for uh, sideline sports in Murfreesboro as well as the uh, Times Gazette um, Bailey Hockman is no longer with the team and, uh, you know, an addition that's come uh, to that story uh, recently looks like Hockman's decision to leave football was family based with a newborn on the way. Um, so, hey, congratulations to Bailey Hockman. Sounds like he's going to be a dad. That's awesome for him. Um, and certainly understandable why you would want to step away from from football if you have that kind of responsibility headed your way. That being said, I think it comes at depending on how you look at it, kind of an opportune time for him because 
that had to be extremely frustrating to deal with, you know, in this kind of philosophy that Rick Stockstill seemingly has adopted with switching him and the rest of the quarterbacks on that roster out when, A, like, had it been me, and again, Rick Stockstill, you know, forgot more football than I'll ever know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Bailey Hockman was by far the best quarterback in that room. So why they weren't just riding with him, I will probably never understand. And B, I think there are just much, much bigger holes in MTSU's armor than the quarterback position. So the fact that they were putting him through that was nuts. And now that he doesn't have to deal with it anymore, I mean, I guess congrats. <laughs> yeah, Joe, it is. It's a really interesting situation, right? You look at Bailey Hockman. I just had to double check as you were going through that story. Remember, he's a native of Power Springs, Georgia. So not too far away from home. But listen, I, by all means, I'm not here to in any way critique or judge or class any asperges on his decision to walk away from football. There are things that are way more important than football. If he feels that, you know, need to be there for his family is is now you know soon to be family is, is the choice then more power to him Absolutely. i do I, I yeah i do think it's interesting from a pure on the field perspective you talked about it was rick stocksell's decision to rotate quarterbacks i'm definitely curious your thoughts on this we've talked about this a lot right both of us are fans of asher o'hara he is doing, you know, good things at Sacramento State. He just had a touchdown over the weekend that was classic Asher O'Hara, right? Him jumping over three people and kind of riding the wave into the end zone. I asked Rick Stockstill this at media day, and I know I've made it made mention of it on the pod, but I'll do it again. He said that there was a need for them to evolve offensively and get away from, you know, kind of the running game going through the quarterback and the running backs that they've recruited, you know, or gotten the transfer portal, whether it's Martel Petway or Amir Rasul from Florida State or other guys for them to get their hands on the ball and for other receivers to grow. And then, and listen, like you said, not only has Rick Stockstill forgotten more football than I'll ever know, I've met Rick Stockstill twice and he couldn't have been nicer and gave me, you know, more time than he ever could have you know needed to on media days. Like I, I really enjoy talking to Rick Stockstill uh, about football. I find him to be a really honest and transparent and forthright guy, right? But that doesn't mean that we still can't kind of have our own questions in terms of this these decisions to rotate quarterbacks not necessarily line up with some of the things he he wanted to do during the year and if he just truly felt that Bailey Hockman wasn't the guy right it maybe wasn't exactly what he thought he was getting when he brought him in from NC State that's one thing but I think it was pretty clear from the two games to open the year that Bailey Hockman wasn't the problem right so it's going to be interesting Chase Cunningham and Mike DeLeo I had a chance to see both of those guys I saw Chase Cunningham two years ago now, 2019, when FIU went to MTSU. And it's not a big guy. I believe Chase Cunningham is about 6'1", 185, you know, maybe maybe close to that six-foot side. Mike DeLeo as well, uh, still on that smaller side, guys who kind of resemble Asher O'Hara in size and uh, in style of play, right? So it's going to be interesting just because you made that philosophical shift away from Asher O'Hara and Tony Franklin, and now the, the big, you know, four-star recruit, uh, coming out of coming out of high school, I should say, started his career at Florida State and went to other places. You don't have him anymore, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, um, I don't know if I can add much more than that. Yeah, and I mean, if yeah, I'll I'll get off of the Rick Stockstill criticism. I will say this: now that this is presumably Chase Cunningham's offense to lead, you hit a, you hit on it. Like his skill set is so much is so much more similar to Asher O'Hara than what Bailey Hawkman was. 
it's going to be interesting to see whether or not Rick Stockstill is like, all right, well, we're already, you know, X amount of weeks into the season. Do we just kind of ride it out and get what we can? Or does he, you know, stick with the program and try to see what he can continue to build on in terms of philosophy for, for next season? Because, you know, at this point, you know, I don't know what he thinks of the, you know, skill of his team, but I don't think you or I or, or really anybody else that pays a lot of attention to CUSA football is is thinking that MTSU is going to make a run of the East at this point. So it, I'm interested to see what the next couple of weeks hold for this team. Yeah, just to kind of, you know, put a cap on it to further those point, um, I said Chase Cunningham was 6'1", he's actually listed at 5'11", so that goes to show you. Mike DeLeo is 6'1", 208, and he's a guy who's from Pembroke Pines, you know, so kind of this neck of the woods, but he began his career at Florida Tech which is an NAIA program. And in his season as a starter at Florida Tech, he rushed for 672 yards and 11 touchdowns while throwing for 1,700 yards and 12 touchdowns. Sounds a lot like a guy you had before. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want a dual threat quarterback. Well, now you have two. (laughs) So, sorry. We'll uh, we'll see which one of those guys can emerge as uh, the guy. My My bet's on Chase Cunningham and the fact that he has so much more experience. Um, and you know, after the season, I'll only have one more year. So, uh, if nothing else, a good practice for, for next year when all their hopes are more or less pinned on him. And then the other, uh, middle segment topic that we wanted to talk about was, uh, the fact that at the, the South Florida game this past weekend, you know, we've seen this before with teams, uh, selling souvenir cups at the concession stands. You get a little refill if you pay a little bit more money, that sort of thing. Um, but a, someone bought it and posted it on Twitter, um, and it made its way to us that A, the cup was from 2019, very outdated, and B, <laughs> may or may not have been used before. It's kind of tough to tell. We don't really have any way to confirm that, but look, look pretty beat up from the picture. So, you know, Eric, as a uh, Central Florida guy, I know you are, you know, taking joy in that a little bit. <laughs> Joe, I am so conflicted as a graduate of the University of Central Florida. I got all the jokes, all of the jokes for the green and gold people, right? But I'm also a native of Tampa, and I grew up 10 minutes away from that university, uh, about 15 minutes from Raymond James Stadium. I have so many questions, Joe. Has that cup been in the stadium since 2019? Uh, was that a personal cup? Was it a personal cup of one of the fine workers at Raymond James Stadium who are employees of the Tampa Sports Authority. And it just got mixed up in the crowd, right? Maybe they come in and like, oh, I'm a bull. You know, I'm, I'm a proud bull and I'm working here at the stadium and uh, I want to bring my cup in, right, to support my team. You know, it's maybe the only time we'll get a win this year, judging the play of South Florida football, first week, opening weeks of the season. I want to come and support the Bulls. And maybe they just, their cup just got mixed in a little bit, right? Maybe he was so excited that someone wanted a souvenir cup. It's like, you know what? I've got a souvenir cup. You wanted a souvenir cup. I've gone from the last time we were good at football. I don't know, but I have so many questions. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, <laughs> I don't want to necessarily put this on the people working at the stadium because they, they have very little control over what they have in terms of inventory there. And, you know, they were probably just on autopilot, you know, if, if they had a big stack of these somewhere and one made it in, I'd be, very curious to know if there were other people at this game who bought the same cup. Cause then like, it's weirder if this was the only one, you know what I mean? Like to just one stray 2019 cup, make its way to this one particular concession stand. And like, 
I don't know. It'd be like the subject of like just like a weird little like cartoon short film. Like where like where did this come from? If there's not like a stack of these 2019 cups that are just you know being sold because they just didn't make it a 2021 cup for whatever reason. I don't know. It's it's weird. There's so many things. If anything, it, it on on the one hand there are so many other issues at the University of South Florida Athletic Department right now. I don't necessarily blame them for souvenir cups not being their uh, top priority. <laughs> but at the same time, like you have to understand that these with how highly visible these things are, like this was going to happen if you don't put the the time and, and care and to make sure that you're not, you know, selling old merch. I want to apologize to my friend, Joe Londergan, because he just put a well thought out minute long answer into a topic that I only have nothing but jokes for. So I'll get back to them. We haven't had fans go to USF games since 2019. So maybe they just figured why we need to restock the cups. That could be one thing. They just were so surprised that someone would want a souvenir from a USF football game. That, they just, just grab that one, right? It's that one's laying around over there. Give them that one. I have so many questions and maybe they can be answered. I don't know, but I know this would never happen at the bounce house. It's true. It, it, it's true. I, Part of me really wants to think like they just ran out of like the new ones. And then, like you said, this was the personal cup, the beloved personal cup of one of these Raymond James Stadium workers. And they were like, oh, you really want a cup? Fine. Here, this one's mine. It's my one worldly possession. And then the guy just gets to a stadium. The hell is this? Raymond James Stadium. It's 2019. (laughs) Or it's 2021, (laughs) not 2019. USF fans wish it was 2019. Uh, I don't know. That's it's a funny coincidence. Um, well, you won't see that at, at too many CUSA stadiums because not too many schools have the money to get their own cups. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but I don't know. Just a, just a funny footnote on uh, this weekend's CUSA. Or not even CUSA. Just this weekend's G5 football action that uh, amused us. Um with that, then let's jump into some week uh, four preview, shall we? To kick things off on Thursday night, we have App State hosting Marshall on ESPN at 7.30 Eastern. App State favored by a score here. Uh, look, I mean, App State has looked pretty pretty tough to start the year. They are 2-1. Uh, they had a victory against ECU, which, of course, uh, beat Marshall last week. They had a, a tough-fought loss to number 22 Miami in Week 2 and then just stomped Elon last week, uh, FCS opponent there. Um, so here's here's my take on this. I think App State has the um, the tools to really control this game, but I think... A, Marshall are going to come out, that defensive line in particular, are going to play angry and continue the pressure and, you know, continue to follow the precedent they've set in these first few weeks. But the margin for error for Grant Wells is only going to get smaller. And we'll see how he responds to a higher pressure situation on the road in hostile territory. Um, You know, look, I'm going to pick Marshall for the upset, but Grant Wells has to play, you know, the game of... I don't want to say the game of his life, but this has to be one of the best games he's ever played. Yeah, Joe, I'm going to keep it short and sweet here, right? You talk about the game 730 on ESPN, a really big atmosphere at App State. Really, quite frankly, would have loved to have seen Marshall come to this thing at 3-0 and and just get that spotlight on Charles Huff. You know how we feel about him on this podcast. Hope he returns next year in the offseason. But 
I absolutely think, to piggyback off what you said, that Marshall will rise to the occasion. Charles Huff will have his team ready to go on a short week, and they'll find a way to get what is, you know, as you mentioned, App State's favorite. So I think they'll find a way to get the upset. That would be huge for Charles Huff's team if they're able to do that. And then on Friday night, we have Charlotte hosting Middle Tennessee at 6.30 Eastern on CBS Sports Network. Uh, Charlotte favored by three. Look, I, I'm, I don't doubt for a second that Charlotte will win this game. But there are many things based on last week's performance that need to change, uh, you know, namely that that run defense. MTSU does not have a strong rushing game. But, you know, if Charlotte plays the way that they did last week, then it wouldn't surprise me if MTSU finds some way to exploit it and make this thing close. Uh, but give me Charlotte. You make a very good point in terms of Charlotte's run def- run defense and their struggles. A really good opportunity for those guys I mentioned before and Martel Petway, um, Shatan Mobley, of course, the veteran there, and Amir Rasul to kind of get going in the run game. But, Joe, I want to leave you with this, and I am taking Charlotte to win here. If Middle Tennessee doesn't win this game, they welcome Marshall to Floyd Stadium on 10-2. Then they go to Lynchburg and play Liberty on 10-9. It's a chance this team could be one in five before they play UConn. And that would not be uh, the type of season that they're looking for there at, at you know, Murfreesboro Mill, Tennessee. So that is something definitely keep an eye on. So if they, their season could really get interesting if they don't get this one. Yes. You know you've fallen when you find yourself in a situation where it's a toss-up between you or UConn. Um, and then on Saturday, we have Central Michigan hosting FIU at noon Eastern on ESPN+. Chippewas are favored by by 10. Eric, I'm assuming you are, are headed up to watch this game in Mount Pleasant. Uh, we need to see a bounce back from just this FIU offense in general uh, for the Central Michigan team. Look, they are one and two to start the year. They lost to Missouri and LSU. So games that, you know, I think you would expect the team of their caliber to lose, unfortunately. Uh, they did beat Robert Morris 45 to nothing. Uh, so they're not a complete slouch, but at the same time, this should be a very winnable game for FIU, but they they have to execute better than what we've seen the last two weeks. Actually, Joe, I am not going to this game. It is actually my dear parents' 25th wedding anniversary. So uh, the only two bulls that I will tolerate, actually, there are no bulls I tolerate. I don't like them either. But nevertheless, uh, it is their wedding anniversary, so uh, I will not be uh, making the trip to Mount Pleasant. But to get to you know the game at hand, Joe, before I give my synopsis really quick, any party surprised 10 and a half point favorites seem high? A little bit, you know, I it, just the fact that they their only win was against an FCS team. But I mean, look, we've seen Central Michigan do some crazy things in the last two years. So I was it seems like they are factoring in past season success into the scoreline, which I don't I feel like you're not supposed to do when you win these gambling guys make these lines. But um yeah, like I said, I, I, this should be winnable for FIU, but Central Michigan is no slouch. I think it's much more of a 50-50 game than a 10.5-point spread or 10.5-point line coming into this game. The key for FIU, Devontae Price will have to get going early and often. He's going to be the guy, especially with Max Bordenschlager kind of looking to find himself still at quarterback. they got to get him going early and often. It's kind of the same formula that I would have said against Texas Tech, right? Kind of put FIU – in those third and shorts, because that's what helped them last week. Once they started getting in third and seven, eight, nine, they, yes, they have playmakers on the outside who can draw penalties, but just not consistently enough if you're going to be doing that and playing from behind. So I am very, very, very much torn on this game, but 
as I said in, you know, kind of recapping the Texas Tech game, Joe, you lose this one, you go one and three, and then you go take on FAU, a team you haven't beaten since 2016. Then you're one and four. And that's not the type of start you want for Butch Davis. So I, I think FIU, they need this one very badly. And I'm taking FIU because of that. Yeah, you do not want to be in that situation if you're FIU. Uh, then we have Memphis hosting UTSA on ESPNU at 3.30 Eastern. Tigers favored by three points in this game at the Liberty Bowl. Uh, I'm excited to see uh, what happens in this game. Memphis, you know, has had some some close ones in this game. Seth Hennigan looks really, really good. He's thrown for 841 yards through three games with eight touchdowns. UTSA's pass defense is really going to have to, you know, have a plan in place to make sure that he's held in check. Um, and then on the other side, you know, you just have to have faith that UTSA's offense is going to keep executing the way that they have been the last few weeks. But um, this is going to be UTSA's toughest test yet. I'm I'm going to pick the Roadrunners. I, I think they'll they'll upset the Tigers. But, you know, this is going to be a, a battle of a lot of points. Yeah, I am taking UTSA as well. And I do think that this is one that – it will be a very, very good test for UTSA's defenses. If they're able to keep Memphis to under 21 in this game, then you really think it for the rest of the CUSA West, you got to look out, right? Because then, you know, they're in really good company. I think UTSA will find a way to win this game. I love the way they've played all year. I love the fact that they haven't been scared to embrace the fact that they are, um, you know, favorites with, UBA, with UAB, excuse me, for the West. So give me UTSA. And then in Norfolk, we have Old Dominion hosting Buffalo at 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Buffalo Bulls favored by 13.5 heading into this game at SB Ballard Stadium. Uh, yeah, look, I'm going to pick Old Dominion. Look, this is not the same uh, Buffalo team that, you know, really had a lot of people on, on upset watch two years ago. Um, they lost to coastal Carolina 28 to 25 last week, um, got beat up pretty bad by Nebraska in week two. And then their, their opening win was uh, against FCS Wagner 69 to seven. Uh, you know, I, I think old dominion, um, you know, look, if they are able to give DJ Mac the time that he needs to get going, then they can hopefully put this one to bed relatively early, but that being said, it's going to be a tough test, but I think we're going to see just how far old dominion has been able to bounce back in this game. Joe, I fully agree with the point that you led with. This is not the same Buffalo team, you know, the one from a few years ago with Jared Patterson and all those guys, you know, kind of pushing for, for bowl success. Right. I do think there's a very, very good chance. Uh, this is a very winnable game for ODU. As you mentioned, wants to see DJ Mack get settled in there, make some good throws, make some plays with his legs and kind of get some of the receivers involved in there. Stone smart. As I mentioned earlier, making the transition to receiver had four grabs last week is a very, very good athlete. So if they can get something out of him in the receiver in the receiving game, that would be interesting. And give me the Monarchs. I, I think that, you know, I had them getting two wins this year. So they need to find another win on the schedule. I think it would be this one. And then with that, we have Rice hosting Texas Southern at 6.30 Eastern on ESPN3. Um, look, I think this is Rice's best bet for a win this season. Uh, Texas Southern, to start their season, they lost to Prairie View A&M 40-17 in the opener and then lost to Baylor 66-7. When you look at those kind of results, you have to be optimistic for Mike Bloomgren's team. Struggles aside, you know, that being said, I don't think this result will necessarily change 
the uh you know people like us talking about how much you know rice needs to do some soul soul searching in terms of the future of their program um that being said this should be a pretty easy win for rice if they are in fact a a division one fbs football team yeah i think you hit the nail on the head there right if if that's the level that they're at and by all means we think they are they got to win this one. The fighting Michael Strahan's are a really undermanned team in terms of trying to compete against Rice. Um, so give me the Owls. If they don't win this game, then they got issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If Let me put it this way. If they don't win, I will be watching the press release wire for something out of Rice, <laughs> unfortunately. And then we have... Louisiana Tech hosting North Texas and Ruston, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, just on local TV, I believe. Uh, but Tech favored by 12 and a half here. I would be interested to see them win by more than that. Uh, look, we saw North Texas's defense really just show that they are not progressing the way that they need to in order to be competitive. Uh, the offense is still solid, and they, they faced a similar type of offense last week in SMU. That being said, uh, I think this this opponent gives them much more room for error than what SMU did. I think Austin Kendall will bounce back and lead this team to a win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really quick, let's uh, give some love. I know the note there in the ESPN, um, ESPN rundown doesn't have a, a, a television partner there. It gives on Stadium. So I uh, just want to you know give the fans who are interested there a chance to uh, watch that one. Stadium, very dramatic uh, in com- you know like commercial music if you're watching on YouTube TV for any of my fellow cable uh, cord cutters. Nevertheless, Joe, two teams who can't stop a cold, right? Can't stop a lick. Uh, can't stop a nosebleed. I think that's the uh, the idiom I'm looking for there. Give me a lot tech just because of the two teams. One of them at least has shown the ability to stop someone over the past three years, and that's the Bulldogs. North Texas has shown the ability to stop anybody over the past three years. Uh, I think it'll be a shootout. I think it'll be interesting if Deion Noville can you know, have a, a great game up front for North Texas. That would make it interesting, but give me the Bulldogs. Yeah, Dion Noville been kind of the the one bright spot for that North Texas defense so far, but unfortunately, one guy does not a defense make. Um, and then we have Alabama hosting Southern Miss on the SEC Network, uh, seven thirty Eastern. If you you really want to watch this and just be in pain if you're a Southern Miss fan, uh, look, Crimson Tide favored by forty five heading into this game. I don't know what else you really want to say too much here. Uh, Alabama is the number one team in the country, and they're going to run away with this one. Uh, I would try to do a mock Stephen A. Smith impression and go roll, tide, roll, but that would only be doing a disservice to the greatness that is Stephen A. Smith. So give me Alabama. Uh, And then we have the Air Force Academy hosting FAU on Fox Sports 2 at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Air Force favored by five and a half heading into this game. I am kind of excited for this one. Air Force two and one to start the year uh, for the uneducated. They uh, started the year with a win over uh, Lafayette, uh, not what we now universally refer to as Louisiana, the Ragin' Cajuns, but Lafayette College, uh, thirty-five to fourteen, and then they beat Navy twenty-three to three in week two, and lost last week forty-nine to forty-five to uh, Utah State. Um, Look, this team is pretty solid, especially when it comes to the run game. They they run kind of a, a similar type of uh, triple option type of offense as you would see run at all the other military academies. Um, 
particularly you want to watch out for this Brad Roberts guy who's got 321 yards on 75 carries so far. Um, but ultimately, like we know that FAU is okay at stopping the run, but ultimately you're going to want to see them improve significantly on that if they want to win this game, which I think they will because honestly, they just have more weapons. Yeah. I mean, this is one that when you, when you take a look at it on the schedule, it's one that, you know, it, it, it piques your interest, right? You know, the, the style, the contrast there, right? But mm-hmm. as we talked about, uh, FA needs to start fast. They cannot afford another slow start, right? So that's going to be interesting. Give me the owls, but I do think it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, this this Air Force team will make you pay if you commit those those types of uh, you know unfortunate mistakes that we've seen FAU make early in games so far. But uh, ultimately, should be able to get the victory here. Joe, really quick, yeah, <laughs> I gotta get this out. <laughs> so uh, my my friend who works for she's listened to the podcast and she was like, anyone ever told Joe that if if my cat spoke, it would sound like Joe." What? (laughs) She's like, my cat spoke, it would sound like Joe. She's like, the voice I envisioned, if my cat could talk, it's Joe from the podcast. (laughs) I was trying to hold it in. (laughs) I mean, I'll take it. Cats are rad. All right. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) All right. Well, I have to keep that in now. I'll bleep the name. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. Let's, 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 yeah, we'll do that. That's funny. Um, and then we have Tulane hosting UAB at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Plus. Uh, Green Wave favored by four in this one. Um, look, Tulane's a pretty good team. Um, had some missteps uh, in their last game against Ole Miss, which they lost 61 to 21. Prior to that, they they beat Morgan State 69 to 20, and then uh, you know played number two Oklahoma really close in their opening game. So uh, obviously Tulane, no slouches by any means. Uh, you know I think if we had gone into this one with a healthy Tyler Johnston, then I would say UAB wins this one easily. That being said, now that he is uh, most likely not in the picture for this one, uh, I'm a little bit nervous of that. But that being said. Um, I think UAB pulls the upset here, but you know, ultimately Tulane is is a really solid team. So let's see what happens in this one. Uh, if if Michael Pratt is able to lead his team to uh, a victory, Joe, I am doubling down. Give me UAB. Here's why: Michael Pratt has been beat up a ton this year. There's one thing that is is shown is that he's going to take a lot of hits. That offensive line has been a work in progress there in Tulane, and we know that UAB has a hell of a defense. Um, I think it'd be a good game. Wouldn't shock me if Tulane wins, but I think that if it's anything that's a formula to get to Michael Pratt and Tulane, it's UAB. So let's get a win here at CUSA. Yeah, that's, uh, that'd be an important opportunity for CUSA to take advantage of here. And uh, with that, we have Western Kentucky hosting Indiana at 8 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network. Hoosiers favored by nine in this one at LT Smith Stadium. Uh, this one is interesting because. On the one hand, you have a Western Kentucky team whose defense has been concerning through their two games. Uh, they played UT Martin and Army, and in both games, they really didn't have much of an answer for their opponent's run game. That being said, you have Bailey Zappi, who threw a lot of touchdowns. He's thrown 10 through two weeks, seven in that first game, uh, and then three against Army, 859 yards. Uh, and then Indiana last week, 
they're one and two. They lost to Cincinnati in a close game there. Cincinnati, obviously a very good team. Um, but look, I think if Western Kentucky can shut down Indiana's pass defense in particular um, with Michael Penix being um, him uh, clearing the injury protocol after he you know, got banged up a little bit last week against Cincinnati. And the only team that Indiana's beaten so far was Idaho, who I, I watched them play <laughs> Oregon State this past weekend in, in full. They're not very good. So all that to say, I think Western Kentucky wins this game. That being said, I really hope that they took advantage of the bye week and implemented some big defensive, you know, attitude adjustments. Interesting. You are taking the tops. I'm not quite there just because what I've seen early game has been really shaky. I think it's gonna be a hell of a game. It's entertaining to watch. Bailey Zappi's gonna do his thing. I think there's gonna be an opportunity for guys like Juwan Jones and D'Angelo Malone to really get off and get to Michael Penix Jr. Um, should he, you know, again, if he's he's healthy and he's going to be the guy, it's going to be they're going to have their opportunities. But I think Indiana is going to be too strong. I think uh, given the expectations that were coming out of Bloomington entering this year and kind of how they've gotten to a start, they're going to be looking to rebound and can't afford another loss against an out of conference opponent. So I'll take the Hoosiers. Okay, I mean, for me in this one, not to dwell too much on it, but it's like Western Kentucky is obviously not as as good to start the year as I hope they'd be. I think they're a couple notches below where I wanted them to be, but also I think Indiana is significantly below where anybody really expected them to be. Healthy Michael Penix or not. That's a fair point. I, I can't deny that. And then uh, to wrap up that slate, or is there another one after that? Uh, there is. There is. It's a... Uh, okay. Yeah. Yes, there is. You're right. Okay, so for week four, to uh, wrap up these last two games, to start with here, we have... Uh, UTEP and New Mexico in this one. Uh, UTEP favored by one and a half. I think this is going to be a victory for UTEP. Uh, we didn't really see them last week with the bye. Uh, I think Gavin Hardison bounces back in a big way. Uh, look, New Mexico, though, they are, you know, they're not New Mexico State. Uh, significantly better. We saw them uh, beat Houston Baptist to open the week. Uh, they beat New Mexico State in week two, 34 to 25. Uh, but then this past week, they played number seven, Texas A&M, and lost 34 to nothing. So, um, look, I, honestly, I think they're pretty close to where UTEP is in terms of talent. But, um, yeah, look, the biggest thing is just going to be Gavis Hardison bouncing back and, and remaining confident, knowing that he's the guy and that he has the, you know, the receivers, in particular Jacob Cowing as a deep threat. If they can get that that chemistry working again, then they should be able to win this one uh, by a few scores. Joe, you can't, you know, really refute any of your analysis there in specificity of Gavin Hardison. So I will just put it as plainly as this because we've talked about it, uh, I believe, after week two. New Mexico, ODU, Southern Miss, and Rice. Those are the four games on UTEP's remaining schedule that they're going to get to six. It's going to be those games. Yeah, I guess you could look at North Texas as a toss-up, depending on what their defense is, but North Texas offensively, I think, would be a little too much for UTEP right now. So those are the four. It's got to start with New Mexico. If Dana Demo's going to get this team bowling, and I think they'll get the win. I am intrigued to see where that one goes. Uh, and again, ESPN Plus at 9 p.m. Eastern, if I didn't say it already. Um I think that's the full schedule, Eric, because we we did Western. We talked about UAB. We talked about FAU, Southern Miss, and then Louisiana Tech and North uh, Texas. 
Yeah, I thought, yeah, that's the full schedule. We hit on everything. That is the full schedule, sir. You know, it's like we get so wrapped up and it's like having a conversation with an old friend over an adult beverage. Although, you know, people may think we are drunk. We make these picks. We do them sober. But yes, we nailed uh, the entire slate. You're not drunk? Not yet. Not yet. Um, I, I could never be this coherent drunk, Joe. Oh, this wasn't coffee. This was just rum. Just I, I was curious. I, I thought it was, you know, Coke, but now I know it's coffee. Yeah, out of an excellent throwback New England Patriots logo, by the way, uh, mug. But yes. Yeah. Um, this was my high school team. This was a gift from our, our we yeah. I was I played on the O line and uh, we got a running back to a thousand yards and he gave us these cups, which was nice of him. Nice. Um <laughs> I just like immediately like fall over just after like a liter of rum. <laughs> hey, really quick, we'll, we'll close this one up. Uh, sure. If you were to drink a liter of rum, what would be your choice of rum, sir? Uh, you know, I'm not the biggest uh, rum guy. I more just set it for the color. That being said, I do like Kraken. Okay, okay, okay. I can't be mad at that. Uh, and, and a nod to my uh, Jamaican heritage with my Jamaican parents. I'm an Appleton guy. Um, okay. Uh, can't go wrong with Malibu for keeping it, you know. A little more uh, traditional, but yes, um, I, I do like rum. It's just it just goes with everything, man. It's, it, it, when you're down here in the warm weather, Joe, it, you know it's always nice to have a, a rum cocktail somewhere on, on the water. With that, then uh, we'll just say thank you so much for listening once again. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about Week Five in CUSA, everything that's uh, happened in, in Week Four as well, and uh, look forward to what we can expect from the rest of the season. Uh, and at some point, we should probably address the whole conference realignment thing. We've been pretty light on that so far, Eric. But uh, you know, as well as the the American folks have, have done a great job of that. But with uh, that move becoming more and more imminent, we'll get to that at some point. Uh, but happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you really soon. Stay safe.